Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the record of Your works this morning. We see Your hand at work in the record of history that we have in our hands today. Your right hand doth valiantly when You created this world and set every atom in this material universe in its proper position to glorify and praise Your holy name through the beauty of the skies above, the majesty of the earth below, the intricacies of the human body, the breath and life that You gave every creature to magnify and glorify Your name. O Heavenly Father, we see Your right hand reaching into Your own creation when Your own fell in sin. And though we were deserving of absolute hell and abandonment, Your right hand sent Jesus Christ, our Lord, God in flesh, dwelling among us, who at the fullness of time took on that mantle to be our Savior, Lord, sacrifice, high priest. And now, Jesus Christ, You are risen again, and You rule and reign over all this universe, and we are so proud to be joint heirs with You in the grace, Lord, that we have received because the blood of Christ has covered our sins. And so we see the right hand of the Lord doing valiantly in each one of our hearts, convicting us of sin, giving us the faith to confess Christ as Lord and Savior, and then causing us to walk in the way everlasting. We thank You that Your right hand is preserved and dictated through Your servants Your Word for us to appreciate this morning. I pray that its pages and ideas would unfold, Lord, like gold unearthed to the prospector, as we place our attention on the truths that will never die and never fail, I pray that they would ensure, Lord, that we would be steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord as we seek to have our faith strengthened by the Spirit's use of this service today. In all that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, might be glorified in our lives lived, reflection of the truth of Your Word written on the tables of our hearts. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. In a moment I'll ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy Word. This morning we'll consider verses 1 through 11, which have come to be known in the gospel record as the triumphal entry. This is the point in Christ's journey to Jerusalem where he comes and actually is on the precipice of the city itself. He crosses the threshold, as it were, on a lowly beast of burden, humble, mounted on a donkey. And this fulfilling prophecies of old, and though the picture seems relatively small and unassuming, in the reality of the greater scope of prophetic history, I think we will find treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God unfolding before our eyes as we consider Matthew 21, particularly in light of Zechariah chapter 9 and 14. So stand with me, if you would, with your Bible open, and let us read, follow along with me as I read Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, 
and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Verse 10, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been taking note of Jesus' journey and the events along the way as He pauses to heal two blind men prior to the moments we read of this morning. Also, He interacted with the sons of Zebedee and their mother. The twelve disciples were pulled aside in verses 17 through 19 to receive for a third time, prophetically from Christ's own mouth, the events that would soon take place, namely His death, burial, and resurrection. We keep rewinding and we find that he had preached a parable of the laborers in the vineyard. There had been an altercation with the rich young man. There had been prophecies to the disciples. Christ has made good use of this journey to reveal at each stage along the way some of its weight and prophetic significance. And this moment is perhaps chief among them. This moment is indeed a crescendo of prophetic reality coming to fruition in the experience of all who had eyes to see. Eyes to see would require, in part, something of a knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so this morning we'll consider Matthew 21, 1-11, especially in light of the book of Zechariah. I would encourage you to flip over to Zechariah, uh, especially the final chapter, verse, uh, chapter 14. But there's a direct reference in Zechariah 9 as well. We'll be going back and forth this morning considering some of the significance and the weight of this moment in light of the prophets of old, and particularly Zechariah. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem culminates in this series of events with a fulfillment of prophetic imagery that Zechariah had prophesied. In the book of Zechariah, some 20 times there is a phrase that I've also used to title this message, On That Day. Title of this morning's message is On That Day. You'll find over and over again in the short book of Zechariah, the minor prophet, On that day, such such and such will happen. So and so will be crowned. This event will take place. On that day, our Lord will do this. On that day, God will fulfill His promise in this way, and so on. This surprising confluence of events in the Gospels we find when we measure them or we line them up with the message of Zechariah and the prophets that that day or that specific moment of prophetic clarity makes so much more sense 
and comes to the foreground when we consider these messages of old in light of Christ and what He is doing on the pages of the Gospels as He approaches the cross and as He approaches Jerusalem. On that day, what does that refer to? Well, I would like to give you a phrase of understanding or a phrase of insight to attach to that, those times or those moments that are drawn to our attention in the context of Zechariah. Whenever the prophet uses that term on that day or indicates, take note, this specific event, it is to say that there is a decisive moment of messianic fulfillment right here, right now, signaling judgment, deliverance, and salvation. Let our attention be called when the prophet says, on that day, when we hear that phrase, we should think of something like this. Remember that the prophet is drawing to our attention, again, a decisive moment of messianic fulfillment, a decisive moment of messianic fulfillment, signaling one of three things, or all three in some cases, there is judgment, there is deliverance, and salvation. Matthew 21 records this day's events, the triumphal entry, and the powerful history-shaping effects, which continue to reverberate to our day and beyond. In other words, when the prophet said, on this day, and then it follows with the prophecy like, the Messiah or will, will come and will appear before you on a foal of the colt of a donkey. When that day finally came, it was so significant and so meaningful that what it accomplished, signed and sealed and delivered in the course of redemptive history is making ways, changing hearts, and shaping the future right up until this moment and will continue until the day that the consummation of all things is finally complete. These moments that appear humble on the surface are of absolutely inestimable weight and significance. This is surprising, in part because of the moment that looks at first relatively normal, ordinary, and maybe even demeaning. For one who would claim to be a king, a prophet, and messiah, it seems striking, surprising, even shocking that they would appear on a humble and a beast of burden, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast. It, especially when we consider Psalms like Psalm 18, which extol the majesty and the worth of our Lord and speak prophetically of Christ and describe Him in the day of His coming as joining with or being pulled by, as it were, a chariot of cherubim, riding on the wings of angels, soaring on the wings of the wind. These are the kinds of pictures we often see in the prophetic language of the Old Covenant. That is, the glory of Christ is expounded in Psalm 18 when we see Him as one who certainly has the power and the worth and the glory to command the angelic creatures and all of nature to serve as His chariot and His throne. And there are other aspects of His ministry where He certainly does that. Even now, as He is seated on the throne, or is 
be at the right hand of the Father and all of his enemies are being subjugated under his feet. Yet there was another moment with, that we considered this morning with equal significance where the Lord of glory, deserving of a chariot of angels and deserving to be enthroned upon all of the universe, appeared humble, lowly, and as a suffering servant coming into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. Jesus chose to enter the city of David as the son of David on a lowly beast of burden. And the book of Zechariah tells us why. In order for us to appreciate the humility and the glory of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, it's important that we understand understand the prophetic backdrop that the Scriptures give us. Something of a stage, if you will. And so heading for four points this morning, the prophetic record of Scripture declares the significance of several things in the record of Matthew 21, 1-11. First of all, it lets us realize the significance of the location itself. Secondly, the identification of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Thirdly, His mode of transportation, the fact that He is riding a beast of burden. And fourthly, we'll consider this morning the celebration, how the people respond with shouts of Hosanna. Since the language of Zechariah is a little unique and we'll be um, using it uh, at some length this morning, let me give you a brief illustration to help understand some of the literary devices that are employed in prophetic literature and particularly in Zechariah. And sometimes you've heard this type of literature referred to as apocalyptic literature, using vivid imagery to portray spiritual realities in ways that communicate beyond mere prose. When we go back to the Old Testament, we see this in some of Daniel's visions, some of the visions in Zechariah. And perhaps the most famous example in the New Testament would be the book of Revelation. There's mysterious, powerful, and vivid imagery, and it's meant to convey something beyond what mere words uh, ordinarily written could record for us. So let me give you a comparison, analogy, or illustration. Have you ever seen a movie and there's a scene where it kind of sets the tone and the stage for the events that will soon take place? And the way that they do it is they give you a rapid series of still images. If they're portraying the 60s or something, there might be violence in the streets, a collection of hippies with guitars, a rose in the end of a gun, You move forward through the 80s. You all remember these iconic images. uh, Some of us aren't old enough to remember, but others have seen them in magazines and whatnot. We see that lone Chinaman in Tiananmen Square standing in front of the advancing army tank. We see, if we go back further, you know, uh, a footstep landing on the moon and, you know, like time life pictures, right? Those snapshots, when given to us in rapid series, immediately give us associations with something. It's something that we can't quite put in words, but it certainly sets a tone. It gives us an idea, almost a a picture or a sense of what to expect. It sets the stage for what this story will be like and some things that it will convey. It's drawing on, through vivid imagery, the experience of the the, uh, viewer to convey something. Well, in a similar way, 
the prophetic literature in the Old and New Testament will sometimes give a series of snapshots, little pictures or glimpses of messianic prophetic clarity, uh, imagery of a, like a branch from the, uh, that, that would grow up from, as a shoot from the stump of, of Jesse, as we read in the Old Covenant. Uh, there's imagery invoking heralds like angels and trumpets. And there's other pictures like this through, throughout the Old Testament. And they give us kind of a snapshot and a sense to set the tone. There's also feast imagery in the Old Testament that comes to the foreground. There's places that are referred to. The Mount of Olives is featured both in Matthew 21 and in Zechariah 14. Living waters, fountains, the picture of shepherding and sheep. And all that to say that a lot of times when we're reading the Scriptures, especially in these literary forms, this imagery is significant. And as we draw on some of these biblical sources, the picture of the triumphal entry comes into vivid, 3D, full-orbed glory for us as we consider it in the backdrop of biblical prophecy. So let's see what we can learn as we do just that this morning, beginning with the location where Jesus is at the time of His entry into Jerusalem leading up to that event. And then we'll dovetail, we'll cross-reference that with Zechariah 14. As you turn to Zechariah 14, I just want to draw to your attention that there is a structure in the final chapter of this book, Zechariah, that actually follows the events of Matthew 21 in a very interesting, similar format. For instance, in Zechariah 14.1 it says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. There is an announcement of something of anticipation. This is one of those snapshots that we see in prophetic literature. The coming of the Lord is significant. That word doesn't just convey a movement of point A to point B, but it conveys a special kind of arrival. When we see the day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord, it denotes, as our uh, title indicates, on that day, a decisive moment of messianic fulfillment, signaling judgment, deliverance, and salvation. So the significance of this messianic coming is unveiled to us in this language in Zechariah 14.1. The author is saying, pay attention, take note. There will come a specific moment of messianic fulfillment, and it will look like this. It will be a day of coming for the Lord, continuing in 14.1, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered, the women raped, half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the city shall be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. Notice verse 4. On that day, there's that language, His feet, so we're speaking of the Messiah, on that day the Messiah's feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, And the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward, the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, there it is again, and all the holy ones with him 
on that day, verse 6, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, uh, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So notice this language denoting, and especially here, judgment, but also a message of deliverance and salvation is indicated by a decisive moment of messianic fulfillment and a location. That is, Zechariah associates the Mount of Olives with the Messiah's authority to judge, to declare this day this group will be punished, this day this group will be saved. And this is a powerful graphic picture of the authority, the position, and the prominence into the future, the significance of what Messiah will be for all time and for all peoples. When the Messiah comes and stands, as it were, on the Mount of Olives, more than just a humble man from Galilee has arrived. On that day, take note, the prophet says, this individual is absolutely unique in all of redemptive history, and in his hand are keys to eternal life and death. It is no accident in Matthew 21 that the record of Jesus' journey includes a notation of his location before he enters into Jerusalem. Matthew 21.1, again, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied, and so on. It might at first appear as a passing note in the text, but when our Lord stepped foot on the Mount of Olives, I declare to you from Zechariah 14, this moment had prophetic significance. Those who with eyes awakened by the prophecies of old could have taken note that this individual is powerful indeed. And the moments that begin to unfold in his life and ministry, I ought to, be, to pay very close attention to. Because the prophetic indicators of Zechariah, they tell us and they correlate with these events in Matthew that there is a coming of the Lord. And though Zechariah also tells us that his coming will be initially in humiliation, he will come humbly, there also will be, as we noted last week in Christology, an exaltation. He will return to that pre-incarnate glory. And he will return with authority to judge. And there will come a day of reckoning. And just as in the, prophets, in the prophecy, the Mount of Olives splits, there will be a split in all of humanity. And those who stand with the Messiah will be saved. And those who find themselves distant and apart, not paying attention to who he was, not submitting to his rule and lordship, not surrendering to his salvation, not under his blood, they will be judged eternal and enter into damnation. This language is intended to remind us that the Mount of Olives is associated with prophetic imagery that Christ, when he, attend, that Christ, when he followed this course to Jerusalem, 
He did so on a path, not just pragmatically to go from point A to point B, but he did so with prophetic significance, fulfilling prophecy all the while. To further underscore this point, I would draw your attention in the text to the Mount of Olives as it appears later on in the book of Matthew. Turn over a few pages and notice where uh, the Mount of Olives next figures in as a sort of stage, setting the stage for this redemptive historical narrative of the gospel. This is in Matthew 24, and we read, beginning in verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, and he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Do you notice Christ has just declared judgment over the temple? He has assumed the messianic authority associated with the one whose feet would stand on the Mount of Olives and Zechariah 14 and would split it in two from east to west. Notice as we continue to read in Matthew 24, verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of what? Your coming and the close of the age. Where is Christ seated? On the Mount of Olives. What is the topic of discussion? The coming of the Lord. What, what are we reminded of as we consider the old? Remember Zechariah 14.1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. On that day, again, verse 4, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. And as we continue to read, and we'll consider this at depth later in our series, Matthew 24 delivers judgment. Christ, as the messianic figure, as judge on the Mount of Olives, decrees destruction and also salvation. Again, on that day, remember, a decisive moment of messianic fulfillment, signaling judgment, deliverance, and salvation. That's a note of the location on Jesus' progress toward Jerusalem in the text and in the context of the prophecy. Secondly, this morning, let's consider the identification. Who is Christ and how do we see His identity unfolding in these events? What does the prophetic record of Scripture in Zechariah declare is significant about the identification of Christ as we see Him here fulfilling prophecy as we continue to read in Matthew 21, verse 2. Jesus says, Say to them, uh, or Jesus was saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill was spoken by the prophet, saying, and then we have a direct citation from Zechariah 9.9. We'll save that direct citation for a moment and note in verse 3, Jesus' self-identity with the Lord. Jesus has referred to himself primarily, most commonly in the text of Matthew, up until this point, as the Son of Man. He has also limited the publishing of His glory abroad, we consider again in chapter 16, 
Verse 20, for instance, when people identified something of His glory and His messianic office, it says in 1620, Jesus, then he strict, of Jesus, then He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. There was a time when Christ would not limit the publication of who He was, but at the appropriate moment would begin to unveil more of His messianic office. And now in the text, we begin to see that. For one of the first times, Christ has referred to Himself prior as the Lord of the Sabbath. He's identified others referring to Him as Lord, Lord, and Matthew 7. But now He tells His disciples to tell someone else, the owner of the donkey, don't tell them the Son of Man needs this, but in fact, the Lord needs this. I would submit to you that this language in 21.3 signals a shift. It signals a shift in the emphasis of Jesus' self-identification, His revelation of who He was. Turn back with me to Zechariah 14 again. We pause at verse 8, but now let's read verse 9. It says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and His name one. On that day, remember, a decisive moment of messianic fulfillment, something else would happen. Not only would He rule in judgment from the Mount of Olives, but also on that day it will be shown and evident that the Lord is King over all the earth. And on that day, He will be one. The Lord will be exalted as one. And so we see an emphasis on kingship, authority, kingdom, His kingdom coming, and we see these moments almost as a coronation service as the kings of old would come in and with their triumph, in in, in a triumphal entry, and the people would give them praises and accolades. That is a mirror image of what's happening at this moment, and thus Zechariah, again, 14, is being fulfilled. And also there is a unity within the purpose of the Godhead in view as we see these events unfolding. And Jesus proceeds from this point on to grant clearly and boldly to the hearers greater and greater testimony to His divinity. And it is powerfully amazing as we read. Notice in just a few verses after this record, we have the following in verse 16. This is in the context of the children in the temple crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. This made the religious rulers indignant, as if to say, How dare you, Christ, receive such praises and such glory from the crowd? They said to him, verse 16, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. This is a direct reference to Psalm chapter 8. Verse 2, Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, the first word I believe in the psalm itself is Yahweh. That is the highest name for God Himself in Scripture. That is the covenant self-disclosure of Almighty God. It says in Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, that is, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. 
You have set your glory above the heavens, verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This is amazing. This is powerful indeed. Do you notice what Jesus is doing? He's identifying the praises offered to Yahweh with the praises offered to Himself. Um, the Englishes, Gene, and also Joel and I, we, we were both in God's providence this last week visited by Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses, you might have had them knock on your door before, and it's easy to see in their literature, and from if you're a little bit in tune with your own doctrine as an Orthodox Christian, where they differ from you, and one of those main differences is on the Trinity itself. The Jehovah is another term for Yahweh that they use to delineate the oneness of God. They do not affirm that there is a God, that there is one God in three persons. Now, if you can somehow make the case from Scripture that Jesus is Yahweh, it has been duly noted by apologists that their entire religious system falls apart. I had several references in my mind that I used to show them that Jesus Christ is indeed Yahweh in the flesh, and the Bible declares it. But as I was thinking about it this week, I could have well added this one. Jesus himself identifies himself with Yahweh and receives the praises of Yahweh from the mouths of infants and nursing babes whom God used to echo his glory to the Son And this is Jesus' self-disclosure of His deity. His deity is unveiled. We find in Zechariah that on this day of messianic fulfillment, we will see that the Lord is one. We will find, that is, that the Messiah figure, the Son of Man, is also Son of God. We will see an inauguration of His kingdom, just as we do in the triumphal entry. And right on cue... Jesus Christ Himself reveals Himself as Lord and as God. This only the clarity of this disclosure only sharpens as we continue to read. If we move forward to chapter twenty-two, notice this exchange Jesus has with the religious experts, if you will. Now, while the Pharisees, verse forty-one, were gathered together, Jesus answered, asked, I'm sorry, them a question, saying, "What do you think about the Christ?" What do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about the Son of Man, if you will, or the Son of David? Whose son is he? They said to him, the Son of David, verse 42. He, that is Jesus, said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, and another direct citation from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? What is the answer? Jesus is Lord. This is our confession. This was Jesus' own confession. And in the moments leading up to Jesus' triumphal entry, this was a time in the gospel where the revelation of who the Messiah figure was became more and more clear. And so we duly note the location from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, the identification, the Lord is one, 
Jesus is Yahweh. His deity becomes unveiled a little bit at a time, or perhaps in glorious shades of full disclosure as we read the gospel with eyes wide open. And thirdly this morning, the prophetic record of Zechariah and the rest of Scripture declares to us the significance of His method of transportation. Why did Jesus ride on this donkey? Verse 4 again in Matthew 21. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus directed. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he, that is Christ, sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And we read then their praises that they offered. Again, referring back to Zechariah chapter 14, as the context continues to unfold, there's an interesting note in verse 14, uh, 15. It says, And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Notice what immediately follows. Verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Let's pause there for a moment. There's a reference there to beasts of burden. That's curious on the face of it, but in the context it becomes more clear, particularly as we read Zechariah 9. So turn back a few chapters. Again, what are we uh, taking note of here? Decisive moments of messianic fulfillment, signaling the essence of the Messiah and His work. Verse 9 of Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. I submit to you in the praises of the people. That's exactly what was happening. It says, verse 9b, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is incredible. It's paradoxical as well. People who in the natural might expect a royal and authoritative king to appear in their midst would likely look for a long train of chariots, the most noble steed in the entire nation, uh, to be a fitting mount for the Lord and this conquering hero to arrive in their midst. But the Bible teaches us to look for something else. The Bible teaches us to look for a moment, a decisive moment of messianic fulfillment when a king arrives mounted on the foal of a donkey. Throughout Scripture, this picture is uh, also uh, comes up in, in different places. In fact, David himself announced during the time that his throne would be passed along to his son Solomon, he commanded, that is, a, a contingency of people to put his son Solomon on a donkey and then to send him into the midst of the people. And the people were to herald him as king. That was the first son of David that entered on a triumphal entry procession to the accolades and to the crowning 
of his office into the, uh, the, into the, among the people of God. Well, it's going to happen again, is the word in Scripture in Zechariah 9. And it absolutely happened again in Matthew 21, when Jesus himself appeared humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In the book of Zechariah, this mode of transportation takes on even additional significance. The book of Zechariah teaches us to identify humble signs of profound significance. In other words, don't look at this event as something that is forgettable, but take note, because sometimes the little things in man's eyes prove to be explosive with power in God's plan. This is the pattern of God's movement in all of redemptive history. We've noted it in the course of our studies over and over again. He chooses a small indescript nation so that when he uses them in mighty ways, their glory is unequivoc- his glory excuse me, is unequivocally seen to the nations around. Later in the gospel, it says that he anoints as his ambassadors the foolish of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And when God anoints his Messiah as king, he seats him on a donkey and sends him into the presence of the people and only those with eyes to see the messianic clarity of the moment herald him with hosannas. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they could know the significance of this moment because of what Zechariah prophesied. But beyond this humble sign, the idea, the theme of actually horses appears all throughout Zechariah. And I would encourage you, if you have some time and are interested, to do a study, a word study on the use of horses in Zechariah. They represent the patrols of the earth. There are visions of horsemen and chariots that we see prior in the book. And even immediately in the context of Zechariah 9, we see something of horses and this imagery uh, denoted in the context. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Later, it says in 10.5, They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I missed one in verse 3. It says, For the Lord of hosts, the second half of the verse, cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. These references continue, it says in 12.4, On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And on and on it goes. Whatever could be the reference here. Well, what is happening is, The prophecy is revealing to us the significance of these images. That is to say, when you see in your midst, O Jerusalem, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God, coming into your presence, mounted on a donkey, then you will know 
that this Messiah has the power over every other war horse, every other authority, every other kingdom, every other power, rule, principality, no matter who has arisen before him and who attempts to arise after he has ascended to the Father because he came in on a donkey and and that significance fulfilled prophecy He took his rightful place in God's plan. He has the victory. And though he rides on a donkey, he triumphs over all the horses of history. This is powerful language. If we read in Revelation 11, verses 19 through 16, we see this theme picked up again as the continual triumph of the Messiah who came in to Jerusalem on a donkey is championed in the text. And here we join him as well. And notice the picture gives way. uh, No longer do we see the the reference to a donkey here, but instead we see a reference to uh, horses and the like. I I may have the wrong reference actually in my notes here. In the book of Revelation though, you'll recall that in the context There is a mighty triumph. Uh, There is a victory parade where Christ himself is pictured on a horse conquering. And behind him, those who are with him appear on horses as well. And I submit to you, this picks up the picture in Zechariah of the significant moment of the Messiah's arrival ushering in the victory of his kingdom. So there we have something of the significance of his mode of transportation. So we have location, identification, transportation. Finally, this morning, let's close with considering the significance of the celebration. As Jesus arrives on the scene in Jerusalem, the people cry out in Hebrew with the Hebrew word, Hosanna. That word has historical significance. It means, save us now, we beseech you. There is a cry that was offered from the throats of God's people whenever they were in duress, whenever they were expecting to be, uh, or whenever they needed or expected uh, intervention on their behalf, they would use this language, and it comes from Psalm 118. The people cried in this way when Jesus entered, in, in Matthew 21, 9, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In this way, they praised him. Later, the children themselves would cry to him in verse 15, again, Hosanna to the Son of David. As we note the history of the term Hosanna, As I mentioned before, we see this language. Daniel read these verses this morning from Psalm 118. Psalm 118.25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And in the Hebrew, that's the term. Hosanna! Save us, we beseech you now. O Messiah, intervene on our behalf. We continue verse 25. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. 
bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. There is hope for a Messiah who would deliver the people of God that would come, remember, on that day. A decisive moment of messianic fulfillment signaling judgment, deliverance, and what was the third thing? Salvation. This decisive moment appears in the gospel when Jesus himself arrives mounted on a donkey, a colt, a foal, a beast of burden, and those people, the throngs who recognize the fulfillment of Zechariah, shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Our Messiah has arrived. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The language of Hosanna appears in 2 Kings 19.19 as well. And in this context, the Ark of the Covenant is returned under David's kingship to its rightful central location in the assembly of the nation of Israel. And as the Ark comes into the presence of the people, there is a psalm, a song offered, and a cries of, Save us now, O Messiah, we beseech you. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just as the Ark of the Covenant representing God's presence, tangibly evident in the fellowship of His people, arrived into ancient Israel. So Jesus Christ, who came to tabernacle among us, God Himself comes into Jerusalem, and in the same way as when the ark arrived into the presence of the assembly, the people cry, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. This celebration is so significant. It is the apex of what the Old Covenant foreshadowed. It is the fulfillment of the hope of all of God's people. It is the essence that the shadow of the Ark of the Covenant represented. It is the cry of the psalmist realized in the experience of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when these people gathered branches... They did so in the same way that people gathered branches to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. I apologize for um, including so much in this message this morning. Perhaps we can at least see how densely packed this section of Scripture is with prophetic imagery. If it's too much to digest in one setting, let us just meditate on these passages later in our own time. Meditate, for instance, on Nehemiah 8, verse 15, where the reclamation of the the, uh, Feast of Booths or Tabernacle was celebrated by the people. And I am told with the aid of commentators like Matthew Henry that when the people would go out and gather branches, they would then build temporary structures, and what they were celebrating was God's deliverance. Remember a moment of judgment, deliverance, and salvation, they would remember the deliverance of God uh, from Egypt in the 40 years where He gave them temporal lodging and sustained them with manna, water at Meribah, and food for them uh, in, in their wanderings until He gave them entrance into the promised land. And as the people would gather the branches, they would shout, Hosanna, blessed is He who would come in the name of the Lord. And we're told um, by some commentators, some historians, that the idea of Hosanna and beseeching, save us now, was so a part and parcel with the celebration of the Feast 
of booths that the branches that they gathered were, came to be known as their hosannas. They were hosanna branches, if you will. And so in Matthew 21, it is no accident in the prophetic unveiling of the significance of these moments that the people gather, they cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And as they do so, they shout, shout Hosanna to the son of David. And then we see reference to the Feast of Booths in Zechariah. All of this is very striking in verse 16 as the prophet continues to unveil this messianic expectation, symbol and imagery. He says, And everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And here these people, in fulfillment of this language, are honoring Christ as King. And as they cut down their hosannas, as it were, they are celebrating, in one sense, the Feast of Booths. There shall be, it says, the plague in verse 18, a second half, with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So in Zechariah 14, again, there's this picture of one day the Messiah would appear with authority as on the Mount of Olives. He would come lowly on a foal, the, the, the colt, the foal of a donkey, but that would symbolize his authority over all other war horses. And as he entered the presence of the people, there would be a revitalization and a fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. And on that day, the people would cry out, Our King has come. It says in verse 20, On that day there shall be inscribed, again Zechariah 14, On the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them, and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a trader, that is, one who, a merchant or who trades in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And immediately, we'll cover this next week, immediately on the heels of Christ's arrival is what? The cleansing of the temple, where he throws out the traders and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Truly a dense compact passage of Scripture indeed. But in this imagery, we're beginning to see some significance of these moments. And in closing this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to one more fact. And this comes in the context of Zechariah in chapter 13. Remember over some 20 times, the author uses the phrase, on that day, to signal a moment of messianic fulfillment. And on that day, he also says in 13.1, There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Later, it describes the Messiah as a shepherd in verses 7 through 9. And as it talks about the shepherd who will be struck and will suffer, it says in verse 9, this hopeful prophecy about those who recognize him. It says, And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver. 
and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. On that day, when Christ arrived, and we see in all of the details in the text that this is the one spoken of of old. For those who recognized a fountain of eternal life was open to them. They were the third, as it were. Those who had eyes to see, the redeemed, who with eyes aflame with revelation and heart dancing with joy, confess, the Lord is my God. My Savior has arrived. My Hosanna moment is real and fulfilled in my very experience today. The significance of this day for the house of David, that is, the people of God, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, is poetically revealed in Zechariah. In additional prophetic language, is a fountain opened for the cleansing of sin and uncleanliness. And in this sense, we see a prophecy of the gospel itself as Jesus Christ would go from his triumphal entry to Calvary to pay for the sins of his people. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious imagery and the fulfillment of what all creation was longing for since the days of old. God, we thank you for the amazing revealing of those truths in the text of Holy Scripture. I pray that you would reveal them to each of our hearts in greater and deeper dimensions. I pray, Lord, that you would call even today, Lord, more into the throne room of your presence, Lord, to cry out, Lord, celebrating the Feast of Booths, as it were, and lifting up their hosannas to their Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because of Christ, a fountain has been opened up to fill me and my sin and my uncleanness is atoned for. And therefore, I can say that I am his. He is mine. The Lord is my God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.